It's an honor and a privilege to get to open the Word of God with you today. We're going to be in 1 Peter, if you want to go ahead and get there. I didn't do the preacher trick and mark it, so I've missed it three times. And I want to just say, take a second and say uh, thank you to Brandon. Last week, he filled in the pulpit for me, and that allowed me and my family to get to go on a trip during the week. And the guy's like a Swiss Army knife. What can he not do? Full, full tool chest there. So, <clears throat> like I said, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 2, verse 13, as we pick back up in our study. And our study in First Peter has been called so far, living for what lasts. Because we know the things that last are going to be the, the, the things of the kingdom of God. And we want our lives to contribute to that kingdom, whether we're teaching in a classroom, on a football field, um, if we're a mechanic, working in a lab or working on a farm, wherever you go, we want to be contributing to this kingdom because we know that God has put us in our specific community, our specific family, our specific place of work, uh, work so that we can contribute to this kingdom work. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump right in. God, I pray that you would give us open hearts to the truth that's in your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, let us submit to you. Open our eyes. Lord, what's of me let fall to the floor. We pray that you're glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we're talking about everyone's favorite topic, not, and that is submission to the government. And specifically... This will put a bad taste in your mouth. Bad rulers as well as bad governing systems. Yay. Wow. You're welcome. Amen. My natural inclination is to explain this away. Like we, we're children of independence. We were born out of a revolution we are Texans. We are self-reliant, and we just want the government to leave us alone, right? Yes. And that's going to be the only amen I get this morning. <laughs> and God is telling us this morning that we are to submit to the government, and that just grinds everything on me. And our challenge, as always, is to submit to the Bible and not to explain it away in order to fit our worldview. So I will tell you at the end, I'm going to try to apply this specifically to people in the, we're going to look at it through the lens of those living in the first century, but at the very end, we're going to talk about us living in a democratic republic with a bill of rights and the constitution, because I think the application is a little different for us, though the main application applies. So let's just have an open mind. Let the text speak. Save your, uh, your rotten eggs from, from being launched at me, and we'll dive right in. So we're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to read all the way through 25. However, we're only talking about verses 13 and 17 this morning. 
but the, I want you to be informed by the entirety of the context. This is one thought, and we're just pulling a piece of this thought out, but the, the application of how we do it is there at the end. So we'll, we'll, this is part one of at least two parts, maybe three. So what's true? God uses people and governments to carry out his will. And we can trust that God is good and he's working all these things out for our good and for his glory. So what do we do with that? We are to follow Christ as our example in suffering in order to draw others to God and glorify God by not returning evil for evil. So let's look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you suffer and you're beaten for it, you endure? Oh, I'm sorry, I read that wrong. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you in, if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to entrust himself to God, uh, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed for you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. So first, let's look at verse 13 and 14. And we're going to see kings and kingdoms are subjects to God. Now, I wasn't super excited about preaching this this week. And me and Brandon, we talk about the, 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 the subject matter of the, the text during the week. And I was like, man, I'm kind of hem-hawing about it. And this was what he, he said to me. He's like, you know, we can submit to the government because we trust in God's sovereignty. And then he paused for a second. He's like, and it's not like the Romans were good guys. So we, we can trust, right? So let's, let's look back at our text. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme 
or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So here's a theological truth that I think will make all of us uncomfortable, but God's not concerned about our comfort. He's, he's, he's just showing us truth. And the truth is that God is sovereign over all things, including bad rulers, and he uses them to accomplish his will. So let me give you some biblical examples. Pharaoh, Egypt. Egypt was an evil place. Egypt had an evil ruler, and God used them. God told Abraham in the book of Genesis for, uh, 400 years before it happened that they would, not 400 years, I'm sorry, that they would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. He called his shot. He told him, like, I'm going to use the Egyptians to enslave your descendants. And then I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And God glorifies himself by delivering Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. Right? He, he shows his power. He sends plagues. He, he, I don't know if you've missed this part when you read the story of the Exodus, but God moves so powerfully by the time that the, 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 the last plague strikes, the Egyptians were loading the Israelites full of gold so that they would just leave. They left one of the wealthiest nations in the world from being slaves. Not just that, so he, he takes them out into the wilderness, he, he leads them to the Red Sea, the Egyptian war machine, the greatest war machine in human history to that point, follows them. They walk across on dry ground and God completely demolishes the Egyptian army without Israel having to raise one bow. And that story of God's glory and God's deliverance has been told for ages. It was, it was quickly spread throughout the land. God uses evil kings and evil governments to bring about his purposes. Uh, Fast forward in the Bible, you see uh, that we, we have the nation of Israel as actually a divided kingdom. That's another conversation for another point. But So the, the nations of Israel, they are just living in sin. The northern kingdom's worse. The southern kingdom's bad. Both of them are bad, doing bad things, worshiping pagan gods, and God sends them Ezekiel, uh, Elijah. Jah and Elisha, and he sends Isaiah, and he sends all these, all these prophets just saying, stop, just stop, stop doing it, or I'm going to send bad nations in to do bad things to y'all to break you. And he does. He uses the Assyrians and the, the Babylonians and the Persians, and, you know, we, we, we see these stories played out of God using these evil empires to, to punish Israel for their disobedience and their idol worship. God, even after they've been in exile for a long time and after they've faced the, the wrath of the Lord through these, through these people groups, Israel, um, God, God's ready to rebuild his, his, his walls and rebuild his temple. So God puts it on the heart of the cupbearer of the king of Persia to say, hey, can we go back and rebuild our walls and rebuild the temple? You know what the Persian king said? 
Go for it. Hey, matter of fact, when, when Nebuchadnezzar took all the stuff out of the temple, all the gold and all the vases and all that stuff, as much of it as we can find, you get to take back with you. Not just that, I'll give you money for the build. And I'll give you people to take along with you. And my people will follow you until you get there and we'll give you protection. Proverbs 21.1 says this, you'll see it on the screen. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. You fast forward, this is non-biblical history, but biblical history, because um, Daniel even talks about Greece. So eventually, per, the, the Persians get real bad, they do real bad things, and God sends the Greeks in. And you'll recognize the name Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, evil, did good things, but God used him to, he basically united the entire known world as he conquered it. And he allowed people to keep their customs and keep their cultures, but what he required them to do was learn a common language, Greek. And Greek's what we have the New Testament written in so that it could spread across a common place very quickly. So then we, uh, Greece falls and we see Rome rise up and God uses this Roman government, God used this ruthless Roman government to accomplish his purpose. It was God's will and God's purpose that the Son of God would die. And he used this Roman government to bring about that purpose. And in him using this Roman government, this evil Roman government, to bring about his, his purpose of the son suffering and dying for us, he bought for us salvation to all who would believe. And it, more than that, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can see God use Rome. It's really crazy. So God uses Rome to prepare the, the quick expanse of this new kingdom that Jesus has brought. There was a thing called the Pax Romana, it means peace by uh, the peace of Rome. It was peace brought with a sword. Rome created this intricate labyrinth of roads that allowed the armies to travel to the edges of their empire really quickly. Have you heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? So they, they, they kept expanding and growing and, and building in power, but you know, the Gauls didn't like being under Roman influence. The Jews didn't like being under Roman influence. Nobody did. So you know what they would do? To, uh, anytime there was a... a a simmering of an uprising, these roads were straight and they were fast and they would send their armies to go put it down quickly. You know what that also made for easy? It made for safe roadways so that these early Christians, missionaries could take God's message out very fast. You see how God used all these things, a common language and a common road system to, to take his message of the gospel to different people groups and nations. God uses governments for his will and for his purpose to bring about his kingdom. And this is part of what we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty, that God is moving all things to his ultimate end and for his purposes while, and this doesn't make us feel good, using sinful men, corrupt governments, and hard situations. So next, let's again look back at verses 13 and 14, and we're going to see subject yourself to the Lord's governing authorities. 
Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Sorry, that cedar's getting me this morning. You are not to subject yourself to the government for, for your own sake. So let me, let me say that first. We subject ourselves to the government for the sake of the Lord's name. We are doing it out of submission to God. So here's the idea. When, when we're talking about submission, putting ourselves under this authority... It's not every human institution. What he means with this every human institution, he's specifically talking about the government. So he's not talking about your social club. He's not talking about like, he's specifically talking about the government and the different levels of government. And I've seen people make an argument, also the church, because it uses that, some of your translations will say ordained. Maybe, I think that's a stretch. I think there's other places where, we could make that case. I just don't think this is one of them. So it's talking about submission to the government. So let's think back to Peter's original audience and what they were dealing with. Because remember, we got we to gotta understand what's being said and who it's being said to. So he's speaking to first century Christians in the Roman Empire, living in pagan, that means idol worshiping, and Jewish communities. The book of Acts shows us from the missionary journeys that the Christians were getting it from both sides. The Jews were persecuting them and the pagans were persecuting them. And this is also confirmed in other ancient writings like um, Josephus and things like that where they're, they're looking back and they're telling these same stories. So here are some of the charges that were levied against the church. The, the, the first one that, that came against the church was that that, that Christians were trying to overthrow the government. Well, that's problematic for the government, right? So that's one reason they were trying to, to put down this, this, this new movement because we called ourselves a kingdom. Another one is um, we were accused of being cannibals. That's funny to you guys, but the rumors of who we were were going out quickly, and one of the main things we do is eat the, uh, eat the, bre the, the body and drink the blood, right? So that was one of the accusations against us, even though we were eating bread and drinking wine. Um, another thing being said about us that these cultures would not have been okay with is that we were incestuous. You know, we are to, we refer to each other as brother and sister in Christ, but they took that and went a different way with it. Um, another thing was we were the cause of civil unrest Think about the story of, of Paul. He goes in and he preaches in this place and their, most of their economy was built on idol worship and then people stopped buying idols and he was beaten up and uh, they tried to kill him for it. So, like, we, we were blamed for bad economies. We were blamed for people losing wars. So you got to think about this, okay? You're going into these first century pagan places that had false gods and the only way that they knew the... I'll put air quotes about it. The will of the gods was based on the situations that came about. So if you did something good and there was a good thing that happened later, you go, obviously I was within the, the will of the gods. So these Christians are making societies. They're, they're, they're living among these, these pagan places and 
There's a downturn in the economy. There's a famine. You lose a, you lose a battle. What can one, what, what, what would be your immediate response? Oh, the gods are mad because we've allowed this new religion into our mists. So we better go run them out so that the blessings of the gods would come back on us. I mean, we couldn't win for losing. And it goes on and on. Um, we were accused of being anarchists because we were unwilling to worship the emperor. When Nero burned Rome, he blamed the Christians. And that was the start of the great persecution. And this was in 64 AD. This book is written, people are guessing, between 60 and 65 AD. So this book correlates with that, with that major event. And Peter is writing from Rome. And so what happens is Nero, this is well documented, he wanted his palace in this old part of Rome because it was really pretty. So he started a fire. And um, hundreds of people died, thousands of people became homeless. And what Nero uh, did was he just used that collective rage and said, the Christians did it. And he, he tried to use that to, to remove us from Rome. So for all the false rumors going around Christians, they just, they couldn't catch a break. And God's command here is to quell and silence any accusers. By the way, these Christians lived, they were to be ambassadors for God's new kingdom by, this is important, being good and loyal citizens in the places that they lived. Your words preach the gospel, but your actions testify to the world about the truthfulness of this claim. This, these different levels of government in the Roman Empire, what they would do is they would praise people who were very civically minded and did good things. And these praises happened publicly. They would give financial rewards. They would make statues of people. They would bring you up front and just praise you in front of the congregation of, of the town. Like, so, could you imagine the Roman magistrates praising these civically-minded Christians, rewarding them in various ways, and then an accusation being made against them. Well, the community would be able to go, we know that's not true, because they've done so much good. The, 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 the rumors of cannibalism and anarchy and all that kind of stuff, like, they, it, would, it would have no grounding that's why verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance and foolish people. The ignorant and foolish people. Doing good will silence those foolish people who hate God and hate the people of God. Now, they might still bring accusation, but those who live among us will know that can't be true. So what is doing good? Doing good here, I think it's simple. I think it's volunteering, being generous, working for the collective human flourishing, uh, working for the betterment of your community, doing your job well. Think about this. These people live around you. They work with you every day. And if you don't do your job well, unto God for his glory, what does it say about the God that you worship? It's a bad testimony on him. 
These first century Christians, they had a problem with rumors, and we do too. Ours aren't the same rumors, but they are solved the same way by doing good in order to silence the ignorant and foolish among us. So what are some of the, the rumors that, um, that are, are going around that can be solved by us living our faith out loud in our communities? One, we've all heard this one, they're just all hypocrites. Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. We're oppressive to women, we're misogynists, we're oppressive to children. We just want your money. We all, and you can just fill in the blank with whatever you watched on TV. We should live in a way that gives the world no grounds to speak against us. We should be generous in our community with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures. We should love the outcast and the hurting. We should be welcoming to the one living in sin while not accepting their sins. One very practical way we can do this is those, those women getting moved out of sex trafficking, go and do physical work, cleaning windows, cleaning up the place, putting the stripes on the, the, the parking lot. That's a, that's a testimony of God's, God's goodness. You can sign up with the Texas Baptist men. They get deployed all the time, but you don't know it. I think about twice a week they're going and taking down trees around the area in our community of, of people who just can't afford to do that. They're going and blessing churches and taking down trees in, in churches that can't afford to have these trees removed. Like, there's so many things, and I know you guys do so much, but when, when, when these accusations get surfaced and start swirling, maybe, maybe it's true of North America as a whole. Maybe it's true of... Texas, maybe it's true of the Christians in McLennan County, but the lost people in China Spring should look, when they hear any of these accusations, they should be able to look at Oak Grove Church and go, that's not true. The, those rumors of being hypocrites and unloving is one of Satan's best apologetics to keep people out of church. You can destroy that narrative by, we can remove the pretension of religiosity by owning that you're a sinner saved by grace. Like, I want you to understand this, and this is not an excuse for me, but if you're around me long enough, I will sin against you because I'm still a sinner. By, by, by not pretending to be anything other than what we are, when we sin, they should not be surprised. But we should also be quick to admit that sin. You can destroy that, these narratives by doing good works and giving freely to your community, like I said earlier, with your time, talents, and treasures. If and when we live this way, Accusations will come, but we won't have to defend ourselves. But I know if you're like me, most of you are asking right now, yeah, but when do I get to not listen to the government? 
we're going to make one more point, then we're going to talk about, yeah, but when do I have to listen to the government? Or when, when do I not have to listen to the government? Let me say it like that. But let's look at verse 15 now. Because God's will for your life is plainly laid out here. Subject yourself to God. Subjecting ourselves to anything is hard, especially as a people who we live through COVID, we've lived through governmental corruption. We're cynical of the government, right? Like, if you're not, good for you. But I think most of us are struggling with this. And you living this way with subjecting yourself to God by subjecting yourself to the to government, he has a purpose for this. There's a reason for this. God says this is his will for your life and your purpose of living in subjection to the authorities around you in verse 15. For this is the will. Everybody's always looking for the will of God. Everybody wants the will of God. Everybody wants this hidden will of God. Here's it plainly laid out for one very specific place in your life. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. That's his will. And why? What is God concerned about? He's concerned about how you're representing his kingdom in a lost and dying world. Because here's the deal. You come to Christ, you give up your rights. You were bought and paid for at a price. And that, that you were bought by the blood of Jesus. We are no longer not our own. We are his. And we are to live for the glory of God. And when we sin in public, when we act foolishly in the name of God, we are not glorifying God's holy name. But when we live in a way that silences the ignorant and the foolish and suffer well with dignity, God is glorified. That's not one that gets amen, but it's true. We live in an upside-down kingdom where perceived weakness is true strength and where projecting strength is actual weakness. It looked like weakness for God's champion of heaven, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh, to come to earth, be born of a virgin, live for 30 years, and get beaten and mocked and falsely accused and nailed to a Roman cross. It looked like weakness for the champion of heaven to die. But in so doing, it was true strength because in his death, he defeated death and sin and the powers of hell. That was, that was what was purchased on the cross through the power of his death, burial, and resurrection. But it looked like weakness to the world, but it was strength in the economy of God. It looks like weakness for us who have strength to not fight back and to suffer. It looks like weakness for us to 
to not try to figure it out by our own means and intellect and intuition, instead falling on our knees and asking God. It looks like weakness to wait on God to move. But in the economy of God, that's strength. Strength for a Christian looks like dependency. In America, strength is defined as self-dependency, self-reliance. But in the Bible, strength is dependency on God in prayer. It's dependency on God in the Holy Spirit and waiting for him to work it all out for his power and for his glory. God tells us in, it, it, God tells Israel in Ezekiel 36, 22, is about to come up on the screen. So what's, what's taking place here is he's, He's telling Israel that he's about to create this new covenant where he gives us a, a, a new spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit where he's sending this, this prince who's going to rule on the throne of David. He, he's telling all these promises and this, will stru- this struck me as funny. This struck me as hard. But he tells us the reason that he does it. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. He's talking about salvation. It's not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Why did God move heaven and earth to bring Christ to purchase our our pardon? For his glory and for his name's sake. He goes on and he says, Which you've profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. The action on the cross was to vindicate the holiness of his great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you've profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, and when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God does all that he does for his name's sake. We just get to be participants in him acting out on his own glory. Our heart should reflect the heart of the son. The son came to earth and died on the cross, Philippians 2, for the name's sake of the father. Our heart should be that in all that we do, the Father would receive the most glory. We should live in a way that echoes the psalmist in Psalm 115.1. You'll see it on the screen. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. Anytime you see anything repeated, that's like a giant exclamation mark, by the way. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be given glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Your submission is about something bigger than you. It's about God's name being glorified even in your suffering. And I'm about to tell you something that's hard. You're like, dude, this whole thing's been hard. I'm about to tell you something hard. It might be God's design that you suffer at the hands of your government so that he would display his glory in you. It was God's design that his son suffer unjustly at the hands of of the Roman government. But because he died, Jesus brought eternal life to the world. 
Most of the people that God has worked mightily through throughout the ages have dealt with persecution at the hands of governments. And their persecution was the very thing that sparked revival in their lands or in their towns. For instance, think about the stories and acts of Peter, his, his, the sermons that he preached. Stephen giving his life. Stephen's life being given was, started the ball moving for Paul to receive the gospel. Paul was used at great suffering for his sake, at his own suffering, to be spread, for the gospel to be spread throughout the Roman Empire. Fast forward a little bit. Men like Polycarp, who, this is after all the, all the disciples and everyone had passed away. Polycarp, he suffered persecution at the hands of his government. Martin Luther sparked the, the revival of Reformation, the by faith alone movement suffered greatly at the hands of his government. John Huss was killed. John Wycliffe, the one who, who translated the Bible, the first English Bible, executed for doing so. A massive movement sparked when he gave up his life. John Flavel, John Bunyan, Corey Tinboon, Elizabeth Elliot, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, and thousands and thousands of men and women were used by God when they received suffering at the hands of the government to spark revival in these different places in the world throughout history. We serve an upside-down kingdom that God uses death and persecution to bring about his kingdom purposes. Where perceived strength is weakness, Independence and walking in weakness is true strength. Let's look at verse 16 now. Living as a people who are free in Christ. Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. We are, are free in Christ. And it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We were freed from sin, and now we are free to live for God. Freedom frees us to do what's good. And if you are using your freedom as a license to sin, to ignore the government of the land and the laws of the land, you as a resident of heaven are wrong. But as Christians... We should never respond to the dictates of the government slavishly, but we should obey out of strength because we have freedom in Christ. Listen to this section very carefully because I'm about to make a case for civil disobedience, but first, we have to get the peace that's true for all people in all times and all places. We are to live this way because we are servants of God. We are free to serve God as obedient servants. And as believers, 
We don't enjoy unrestricted freedoms, right? We're free to do whatever, but he's given us restrictions. And our freedom is to be exercised under the authority of God, informed by the word of God. We are called to live under God's lordship, obeying the government as God's servants. We as believers, we answer to God and God alone. We do not answer to the government. We are not to operate according to every edict of the government when it is evil and it, it's not in accordance with the ethics of the scriptures. Ultimately, our ultimate loyalty of a Christian is to God and not to Caesar. And we are to submit first to God and then to governing authorities. And if a government prescribes what is evil or demands for a believer not to worship God, then believers as slaves to God must refuse to obey. This, like I said, this is true for all people in all times, in all places. But the context that we find ourselves in is not living in the Roman government in the first century. That's not where we find ourselves. So now what we're doing is we're going to build a biblical ethic very quickly of how this applies to us in our context. So back to the question of when do I not have to listen to the government? First and most plain is when they're asking you to do something that's breaking God's law. This is civil disobedience. For instance, when Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill the Israelite babies, God applauded the midwives for not fearing not fearing Pharaoh, but fearing God, right? He applauded that, civil, that act of civil disobedience. Daniel and the boys from Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were not willing to bow down to the idols. God praised them for that. They were not willing to eat the king's meat. Uh, a New Testament example is Christians were not participating in emperor worship, which often incurred a death sentence but they were still living in a way that honored their emperor. God does not condemn all civil disobedience when the law of man opposes his law. Civil disobedience is okay in some instances, but there are, this is important, church. We want to, when you stand against evil, Peter doesn't say if suffering comes, it's when suffering comes. When you stand against an evil government, you should fully expect the consequences of an evil government. And this flies in the faith of health and wealth gospel, that God's intent is, is that nothing bad ever happens to you. No, it is his intent that you suffer and you suffer well for his glory. Civil and civil biblical disobedience comes with consequences of the evil government, and we are to suffer as Christ did. Look at verse 19 on the screen. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. That's gracious in the eyes of God. Verse 20. For what credit is if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Nobody cares about that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, 
you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God is being glorified in that. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The expectation is that Christians will follow in the steps of Christ facing suffering. Praise be God that none of us have more than likely experienced this because we live where we live. But that's the expectation. And that's where most Christians in the world live. But we don't live in a monarchy. We live in a democratic republic and we have a representative government, meaning we get a say in how we're governed. The Constitution established the United States as a democratic republic. It's democratic because people govern themselves. It's a republic because the government's power is derived from the, the people. And this means that our government, federal, state, and local, are elected by the citizens and should operate under the authority of those citizens, of the will of the people. All that to say is, we get a say in our laws and in who leads us. The first century Christians did not. And many Christians in the 21st century don't. And they have to read, they have to read this text differently. If we were in a different situation, we would have to read it differently. We are uniquely protected by the Bill of Rights and a Constitution. Since we're uniquely protected by the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, we have laws that overarchingly protect us from these sub-laws, right? And I think as American citizens who are Christians, we get to be critical, but we must follow the laws. And when we see them as unbiblical, if we, and when we see them as things that break these overarching laws like the Bill of Rights, then I think we can, this is, this is very debatable, but I'm going with what I think. I think we can, in good conscience, have civil disobedience while fully expecting the wrath of the government. That's the thing. We, we, we want to we disagree without any consequences. We, we want to reject the laws without... Be ready for the consequences. And this isn't me being political, but we are to steward everything that God has given us. And God has given us a country that we get a say in. And if you're not putting your say in by voting, I would say you're not stewarding well what God has given you. Amen. <laughs> there are... 2 million and, or 210 million professing Christians in America per the 2021 census. On election day in 2020, I bring that up because this is the day when most people vote, only 150 million people on both sides, all sides, voted. Why do I say that? Why do I pull these figures out? Because we are seeing played out before our eyes legislated sin. 
The legislature is the voice of the people. And if you're not voting, this is hard, then you're complicit in that sin because you have a voice. And I'm going to be honest, I'm feeling really convicted right now because what... When we moved here, yeah, we got registered and all the stuff, but I've not participated yet. I didn't, I've not done my due diligence to figure out when all these things are going on. I just, we had somebody in the office that knew what was going on and they just told us, I was like, all right, it's time to go. But like, I'm feeling convicted here. I'm not just trying to beat you up about it. So here's the thing. You don't want transgenderism to be the norm in the school. Go vote. Go serve as our text says, go do good in your community. You don't want evangelism to be criminalized as hate speech. And it is happening all over the Western world. Like, you got to understand that. And we're always a few years behind Europe. Go serve, go vote. In many states, if you're a, a counselor and you counsel against sex change or calling, uh, calling it gender dysphoria or counsel against transgenderism, you can lose your license. That's the consequence of a Christian being civilly disobedient. You don't like it, go vote. When they call evangelism hate speech or define marriage as, uh, it, or hate speech defining marriage as God defines it or legislating sin and requiring us to accept it, what are we to do? We are to speak truth in love and deal with the consequences of breaking that law. We are to speak truth in love and we are not to capitulate to the culture. Even if it's legislated, we will not capitulate. But we better be ready to pay the fines. We better be ready to do the jail time. That's what this is talking about. This, that fits, I think, within the ethic that we're learning here. The liberal and conservative um, electorate or the the, the the, the senators and the governors and all these kind of people, not the electorate, they're not going to go past their support base because they want their money and they want their power. So if we were loud enough and we voted often enough, they're not going to walk past that money. They're not, they don't want to lose their power even if they don't agree with what their voting base says. I believe things would be quite different if more believers stood up, spoke out concerning the things of God with their votes and with their voices to reach out to their representatives in a Christ-like and respectful way. That's key. If you're not doing it in a Christ-like way, I'm going to call that sin. And make your voice heard. My final thought on this is that people say that you can't legislate morality religion or a worldview. Every piece of legislation is someone's morality being imposed on you. Every piece of legislation is someone's worldview being imposed on you. Every piece of legislation that's a, it, it's, it's someone's religion 
even if they have a lack of religion, being imposed on you and the ones you love. So go be heard. It's okay to have an opinion that's informed by the Bible. I like what Allie Stuckey says. She says, politics matter because policies matter, because people matter, and policies affect people. And these policies are going to affect our ability to openly share the gospel and speak the truth of God. Now, we can still do it, but there's going to be different consequences for it. So, I'm going to wrap up, but I want, I want two final things. I want you to understand what I'm not saying, and I want you to understand what I am saying. I'm not, I'm not advocating a party or a candidate. I'm not telling you to go be ugly, to go grab picket signs. I'm not telling you to go scream in the streets. I'm not telling you to be ugly online. I think, I think these, many of these actions are sinful. I'm not telling you to do anything like that. I'm telling you to submit to the government until the government asks you to do something that's sinful. Then I'm saying we should oppose the government and suffer with dignity and a Christ-like love and a humility the consequences of breaking that law. I'm telling you because of our system of government, you get to be heard and, and the voice of Christ is what you want the world to hear and you get to speak at the polls and you get to speak with your mouth and you get to speak by being a good steward of the land that the Lord has given you. So that's just my, that's the message this morning. Speak truth and love. Love people well. Go be heard. Go stand up for the things of God. But do it in a loving way, in a kind way. And if it ever causes you to have to stand against the government, suffer as Christ suffered with dignity and love and humility. If there's anyone in here that doesn't know Jesus, I want you to know that Jesus gave his life so that you can have this freedom that we've talked about. And I'd love to have this conversation more with you down here. But I'm going to pray, and we're going to end in a song.